everybody to start filtering in. Um, a word on Alan that Connie received a text from them said that they are still waiting for them to get the car on the trailer. <coughs> it's, a, it's a pull trailer and uh, the car is, is on the trailer fully and so they don't have the um, know-how to do that so they're waiting for them. So uh, if it was me, I would have my U-Haul in front of their door and said, put it on. <laughs> yeah. But that's me. <clears throat> let's, uh, let's start with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, we do want to come before you and acknowledge that you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. Wonderfully did you create them. You created everything after its kind. And that's an important concept because it's not something that will evolve from one kind of thing to another. It is after its kind. And so, Father, we don't have such a cosmodge of different things in creation whereby we can't identify a tree from a flower. It's after its kind. And so, Father, as we look at this, we see also an allegory of creation, a new creation. And, Father, as we look at what it means to be growing in Christ into maturity, we all grow at different levels. We're not all the same. And you treat us differently. Those that are more mature in the Lord, we get a more intense test. But those who are babies in Christ, they get an elementary test. But you test us all. And you help us to grow. I'm very grateful for that. Sometimes, Father, we become weary. And we want it to stop. But, Father, you're the one who decides when to stop and when to continue on in the trial that is going through our lives. We rest in your wisdom. We rest in your understanding. And so, Father, I come before you this morning and ask you that you would give me the wisdom and the ability to convey what you have shared with me. And, Father, I know that my enemy right now is time. 
And so I ask you, Father, that you would enable me to be able to share as much, if not all, of what we've prepared. And we'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read portions of the account that I'm going to be dealing with instead of reading the entirety of it all because I feel like that helped me a little bit um, time-wise. So the first thing I do want to share with you is the battle for holiness. The battle for holiness. You know, that is a very important area in our lives because it's very important to God. Holiness. Let's look at Genesis 1, 9 to 10. And then hold your finger there and we're going to go over to Genesis 2, 7. I want to combine day 3 with day 6. Day 3 with day 6. So it reads... Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. And let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now in chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And we're still living, right? (laughs) We still are living beings, and God is still breathing into us by his Spirit. Is he not? Two words here for land. One is Eris and the other is Adama. <clears throat> Eris and Adama. Now Eris is speaking of the whole earth, all of the land, everything. Okay? From sea to sea is the land. <clears throat> I see that Alan and Shasta have made it. <clears throat> Adama is not the, it's different from Eris in that it's just a portion of land, a, a segment, so to speak. So, out of the dust of the ground, God made man. And we are returning to the dust of the ground when we die. I'm not dead yet, and I still have life in me, and my body is not turning to dust yet. But it seems like it is. Adama was cursed. God cursed the land. Genesis 3.17 then, then to Adam he said, 
Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, I better get off of that pretty quick, <laughs> and have eaten from the tree uh, about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Then what does he say? Cursed is the ground because of you. Well, that's conviction, isn't it? Because of you. And toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, sin nature is what has been passed on down. That's from generation to generation, and that is the curse. That is what has happened to us spiritually. But yet, folks, are the land that we till still doesn't. It doesn't yield like it did before the curse. Now it wasn't there, and I don't know how it yielded, but I could tell you something, that I believe it yielded 100%. When he, when he dropped the seed and he goes, oh, man, I didn't mean to drop it, and all of a sudden it just springs up into a flower or whatever it was. That earth was very receptive, but now it wasn't. The ground was cursed. The harmony between man and the ground was no more. And so what Adam, how long and how long he was living before he received Eve, I don't know. But I do know one thing is that he had an amazing vocabulary because you can't name animals and know something about what they look like and what they do without having some kind of a name that characterizes them. Would you not say so? So he wasn't some, some caveman that was in a cave and didn't know what was going on and said, oh, oh that's fire. Oh, that hurts, you know. I mean, he was... Alive, he was brilliant. He had a tremendous mind. His name was Adam. But he messed up. And so now the ground was cursed. All of the ground was cursed. All of the ground from everywhere that you can see, it was cursed. There was no place on the planet Earth where the gardens were flourishing because there was no curse. But there was one plot of ground that was holy. You say, what are you talking about? One plot of ground that was holy? What possibly could be that one plot of ground that was holy? If you know, don't say it. I'm the one that's doing the preaching, not you. <laughs> God said to Moses, take off the sandals from off your feet, for the ground that you're standing on is holy. Now that parcel of ground was not cursed. But there are some things about this that really gets my interest up. Because I'm kind of the man that uh, 
Bob and I were talking about questions. I ask questions all the time. I'm always asking questions. And so when I get into the Word of God, I'm asking questions. And so therefore, maybe I don't know the answer to it, so I'm saying, God, show me the answer. And so I'm going through And so research takes a lot of time. I don't know if you realize that or not, but you go through lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of verses trying to find out some answers. And so he said to remove his sandals. And the question that came to my mind is, why his sandals? Why not his head covering? Well, he had a turban, you know. And it was his brain that got him in trouble, you know. So why not ask him to remove his turban? Well, there are several reasons why he asked him to remove his sandals. And folks, let me say this, is that I don't believe he asked him, he told him. He said, remove your sandals. <clears throat> well, Moses wasn't sure in whom he was really communicating with. Well, this was a burning bush, and it wasn't being consumed, and he knew the God of the fathers, but he didn't really come in contact with this God. And this God is telling him to take off his sandals, for the ground that he's standing on is holy. Well, one of the reasons why he said for him to take off his sandals is because his sandals were in direct contact with the curse. The sandals was collecting the cursed ground under the soles of his feet. And so when he was standing there, he said, take off your shoes because I can't stand the curse. It's cursed. When we say it's cursed, what do, what do we mean by when he says it's cursed? It means it's abominable. Is something that God cannot be in the presence of. He hates sin. He wants nothing to do with it. So take your sandals off of your feet because the ground under your feet is the dirt that has been cursed. Well, so secondly, that was first. He was said the ground was cursed. And so, therefore, on the bottom of his sandals was the cursed dirt. The third reason is a figurative. Now, you really need to follow me here because you're going to say, okay, where are you going? Well, if you want to know where I'm going, you're going to have to follow me, all right? That's the only way you're going to get what I'm saying. <clears throat> figuratively. Moses was to take off his sandals and because there was no water anywhere near it was a symbolic washing of his feet. Any time that they took their sandals off whether they came to a person's home or whether they came to their own home they always washed their feet. It was just that thing. That was what they did. Now, we don't need to do that here today because our feet don't get so dirty. But see, there's another thing about that is that the cursed ground was all over his feet. And so you may think, well, why the sandals since the dirt is on his feet? 
Well, the dirt's under the sole. Remove your sandals, but my feet are dirty. He couldn't say, well, remove your feet. Now, you say, well, now, how do you know that? And I'm glad you asked that question. Can I fix and tell you? God commanded his high priests to wash their feet and their hands. But see, he didn't just say, wash your, hand, your feet and your hands. He said, you better wash your hands or your feet or I'll kill you. Does that mean it's kind of serious? I'd say so. You know, why would God be so imperative in this thing? Because God is holy. God is so holy, he transcends everything. He transcends the entire universe with his holiness. Now, those that are in my class know what I'm talking about. He transcends all of his attributes. He transcends his love. He transcends his faith. It's all holy. Because God is holy, that means everything he does is right. It's just. I would much rather stand before a just God who's a judge of my life than I would want to stand before another, an earthly judge that doesn't know me. God knows me. He said, wash your feet. Exodus 20. I mean, Exodus 30, 21. So they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. And it shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron, his descendants throughout their generations. You say, well, that's kind of harsh. No, it's not. God says, wash your feet because it's been connected with the curse. And I want you to walk into my holiness barefooted and clean-footed. You see, because the holy place was holy ground. Now, hmm, what is the reason behind all that? What is the purpose behind all that? Jesus gives us the reason for it. And so I want to give you the connection as to what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus doing? You see, Jesus had his disciples sit down and he put a robe around him and he began to take the sandals off of the feet of his disciples and wash their feet. You say, well, that's an example of being a servant. And that's true. That's true. But there's another meaning for that. It's in connection to what has already been stated. And I'll show that to you. So he, Jesus, poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And by the way, I'm at John 13, 5 to 7. I'm sorry about that. I'm moving along. He washed his disciples' feet 
and to wipe them with a, the towel and which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter. Boy, isn't that a statement right there. And then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter, like always, got to say something. He's the one who's got the loose jaw. He's the one who's got hoof and mouth disease. And so he's the kind of person here, you're saying, oh, wait a minute, you ain't going to wash my feet. You don't wash my feet. And so Peter said to him, Lord, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter objects, refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. In John 13, 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now let me ask you something. When Jesus said, You'll have no part with me, is that not God who's speaking this? Is that not the Son of God that is speaking this? Was it not God the Father who said that if you do not wash my feet, you die? Well, what is the difference here? What is the difference between these two passages of Scripture? Both of them is dealing with washing the feet. So what's the difference? Well, in the Old Testament, it's saying that you wash your feet. In the New Testament, it is Jesus that is washing their feet. It is God that's washing their feet. Folks, I'm here to tell you that there isn't anything that we have that we've earned. There isn't anything that we have that we deserve it. Isn't that right? God's given it to us. Now, I'm fully capable of washing my feet. I guarantee you, I do it every day. But there is a washing that came from Jesus that I cannot do. I can't do that. Peter says, man, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands and wash my head. Just give me a whole bath. And Jesus tells him, and this is a very key verse. A very key verse. Verse uh, 10 in it. Yeah, verse 10. 13, 10. Jesus said to him, Peter, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. He was talking about Judas. But you are completely clean. Now see, there's a physical bathing, but there's a spiritual bathing. The spiritual bathing that we received is the atonement. We are cleansed fully and completely by the blood of Jesus Christ. We, we are cleansed. We are bathed. We 
longer need to bathe. So you already taken a bath. All you need is wash your feet. So the cleansing is by Jesus Christ. And that's the reason why he's so adamant about washing their feet. But the feet, washing the feet is different. And in one seven, the bathing is one seven B, first John, one seven B. The blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. Cleanses us from all sin. Now what is that? That is in the position, positional salvation. That is imputed righteousness. Okay. We got that. That's positionally. We have we have that. We're able to go into the Holy of Holies and we're able to pray and we're able to converse with God and we're able to get in his presence. We, we've got that. But practically speaking, we sin. Is there anybody in here that don't do that? I'm so glad none of you have raised your hand. But the feet is in contact with the world's dirt. We are constantly in contact with the world. We are constantly having dirt on our shoes. We are constantly being in contact. We are constantly sinning. And so we confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. So that's the purging. So every every time God expects us to confess our sins. He expects that. Homolecho. Confess. He cleanses us. Cauterizo. He purges us. That's our feet. So we can stand on holy ground practically. So we can come into the presence of God practically. When we have sin in our lives, God doesn't listen to us. Take off the shoes. Take off the sandals, so to speak. Off your feet. Confess your sins. And then come into the holy presence of God. And this is something I practice all the time. When I begin to start praying, I ask God for forgiveness. I ask the Spirit of God to remind me of anything that I've done. Now, our fellowship with Christ is eternal, and I'm not talking about fellowship. I'm talking about getting into the holiness of God. I'm talking about being in the presence of the holiness of God. I'm talking about hearing God. I'm talking about praying with God. I'm talking about God moving in my life. That's what I'm talking about. And I can't get that. If I've got sin in my life, if I've got sin that I refuse to confess before God, God is going to deal with me about that. He's going to spank me. And just and rightly so. I need a spanking. So therefore, Putting this in perspective, how serious is God about his holiness? He's very serious about it. He does not want you to profane 
his holy name. He does not want you to cause his name to be blasphemed. He won't, he won't, he won't deal with that. The second part of the day three is the fruit of holiness. A fruit of holiness. How does, how do we bear that? Genesis 1, 11 to 13. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass and the herbs, herbs that yield seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and the herb that yields seed according to its kind. Excuse me. And the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. That's the close of the third day. Now the Hebrew word for kind is mean. Now, I don't mean mean. I mean you're mean. I mean that's the Hebrew word. It's mean, M-E-E-N, mean. It means species, species. God created it so that, that, that there would not be any cross-pollination. Now, if you think about it, it is a wonderful thing. When I go out to the forest, I want to see a pine tree to be a pine tree. You know what I mean? I don't want to be a, see a pine tree that's part fruit tree. I want to see a pine tree. And see, the evolutionists say, well, you know, all this stuff just comes like this, and you know, everything's just in, in, a, in a chaos. And God didn't create anything in a chaos. He created it after its kind. And so, well, that's just a Genesis account. Well, all you've got to do is walk through the forest. All you've got to do is walk through a flower garden. All you've got to do is walk and see God's nature and see that God created everything after its kind. Even in the animal kingdom, God said, I've created everything after a kind. Can you understand what it would look like to see a zebra elephant? What would you call that? Elephant zur? Elephant zur? Elephant bar? Or something to that effect? What kind of an animal would that be? That was the most ugly thing I've ever seen. But see, God didn't create it that way. God said, everything after its kind. So the question is, why aren't they doing that? Because God said, don't do that. After its kind. See? So when God says something, it's law. It never repeals it. Man can never alter it. Even though he thinks he can, he can't. So there is also a kind spiritually. There's different kinds of fruit trees spiritually. Did you know that? I wouldn't lie to you. So just like the natural kinds, there is the spiritual kinds. You've got a bad fruit tree. This is what Jesus was telling us. 
You've got a bad fruit tree that can never produce good fruit because it's, a, it's, it's kind. You understand what I'm saying? It will always be a bad tree, just like a goat will always be a goat. A sheep will always be a sheep. A good fruit tree will always be a good fruit tree. It will always produce what kind it is. It doesn't alter. There is only one kind of fruitfulness that is acceptable to God. I'd like you to look at Matthew seven eighteen to 19. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Now, isn't that nice? Aren't you glad about that? I am. Nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. How then can we know good fruit from bad fruit? Well, Jesus answered that for us. He says, therefore, by the fruits you shall know them. I said, okay. Well, I had another question. How am I going to know them? How am I going to know them? How am I going to know bad fruit from a good fruit? All right. Good question, son, I'll tell you. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Now, when it says not everyone, it, it leaves room to say that there are some. Do you, you see that? So he's talking about those here in this verse who are good trees because they obey the will of his Father. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. So this is a good tree. This is a good tree, and it's bearing, it's bearing good fruit. And how does it bear good fruit? By obedience. By obedience. By following what God says for you to do. That's obedience. That's good fruit. Jesus reveals a bad tree. A bad tree, the word bad, by the way, is pon eros. Pon eros is a bad thing. <laughs> I mean, it's really bad. It's really evil. When Jesus is saying bad tree, he's not just saying a oh, bad, bad tree, you know. He's saying pon eros. He's saying you so, you have you're so evil. You're so wretched. The same word is used in Genesis 13, 13, in the Septuagint. That's the Greeks in the Old Testament. Paniros. He's speaking about Sodom. 
But when the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked, the word wicked is poniros, and sinful against the Lord. Now you know what God did to Sodom, right? And they were exceedingly wicked. But see, that gives you an idea what poniros is. When he says that they're a bad tree, he's really saying they're very, very evil. They're very wretched. So Jesus, therefore, is going to describe a bad tree, and he does that in verse and in, in, in verse twenty-two and twenty-three of the same chapter. Now, see, he starts off this first. He doesn't say not everyone. He says many will say to me in that day. See the difference, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me who practice lawlessness now folks I'm taking you someplace just hang with me all right how is this a bad tree how is it a bad tree well they are independent and disobedient to the word of God, which is the will of the Father. They don't care about the will of the Father. It don't matter to them. They're doing all these things to make it for sign, it's for show. They're trying to show you that they're really some godly people. It's not. It's not. So they're independent. They're disobedient. You know, God doesn't like independent people. You know what independent people do? They do their own thing. They don't do God's thing. Their deeds are not impressive to the Lord. He didn't say, oh, that's really great. Thank you. I mean, that you can enter into my... No. No. He's not impressed what you do. It's impressed what you believe. What do they believe? Well, they didn't believe in the will of God. They didn't believe in any of that. They did not want anything to do with the will of God. Bad trees do not become good trees. There's a difference of kind, just like goats and sheep. They're a different kind. And so I said that again to give you an example. In the Old Testament, there is a certain kind that is a bad tree. It's found in 1 Samuel 15, 22. 1 Samuel 15, 22, it says, Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifices and to heed the fat of lambs. Saul was independent. He was disobedient. In essence, he said, I will worship the way I want to worship. I will do what I want to do. 
And I've decided to take some of the lambs, and I've decided to take some of the animals, and I'm going to use them for sacrifices. And God says, no, you're not. That's not what I want you to do. You're supposed to take care of all the Amalekites. But he didn't do that. And so it says, and I want you to catch much delight. When it says, Samuel says, the Lord has has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice? Much delight. I want you to catch that. Much delight. The word much delight is kephits. Kephits. It means pleasure. Think about that. What God has pleasure in our obedience. He has displeasure and our disobedience. That's interesting. So that means that that when we obey, that gives God pleasure. Hmm. God gets pleasure in our obedience. Why? Because it reflects his holiness. When we are obedient to God, it's like a reflector. We are reflecting his holiness because we're doing what he wants us to do. It's godliness. Notice these verses of scripture here that deals with obedience and holiness. A highway will be there, a roadway. It will be called the highway of holiness. The the unclean will walk and travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way. And fools will not wander on it. Ezekiel 36, 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Romans 1, 4. And declare to the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Okay. Okay, five. Moving on. And I've titled this The Heed, the Call of Fishers of Men. Now, see, we're all flowing. We talked about Adama, which is the ground, which has been cursed. And now we understand what it means to have our feet washed from the soil of the cursed ground in our confession of sin. We understand that by obedience, we reflect the holiness of God and that God has pleasure in our obedience. And now we're looking at being fishers of men. Well, let's look at the passage of Scripture and see how this allegory works with that. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves, with which the waters abound, according to their kind. 
and every winged bird according to its kind. Do you understand the kind, 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 kind? Okay. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning was the fifth day. I have a question. Why did God give a domestic command to the fish and the birds to be fruitful and multiply? You say, well, what do you mean, domestic? Why, what do you mean by domestic command? Well, because that command has always been given to God's people. It's never been given to fish, you know? He never said to the animal kingdom, be fruitful and multiply. He never said that. He never said to the stars, be fruitful and multiply. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. Why would he say it to the fish? Is it because he thinks, he believes that we, we need to do more fishing? We got to catch more fish? No, not, not really. There are six other times that God uses this word, be fruitful, this phrase, be fruitful and multiply. Six other times. He said it to Adam. He said, be fruitful and multiply. He said it to Noah three times. Be fruitful and multiply. He said it to Jacob. Be fruitful and multiply. He said it to the nation of Israel, be fruitful and multiply. But he said it to the fish, be fruitful and multiply. Well, the fish, if you stop to think about it, is a typology of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So I don't know the connection. Oh, I'll give you the connection. Fishing is the only example of evangelism in the New Testament. Fishing was. At the beginning of our Lord's ministry, he called his first disciples, which were fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and guess what? They were fishermen. <laughs> In Matthew 4, 18 to 19. Matthew 4, 18 to 19. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting the net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There's your connection. Fishers of men. But then, after his ministry for three and a half years, what did they do? They went back to fishing again. Got on their boat, and Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. So they go fishing again. So, 
in the morning they fished and toiled all night and Jesus is standing on the shoreline and he says cast your net on the right side of the boat that always puzzled me now he's standing on the beach right side and they're standing in the boat which is the right side well what is the right side I, I don't know what the right side is I didn't think that was so important to the Lord for me to know that. So I just say, okay, right side then, all right. So it means the side that God wanted him to throw it on. So he did. That was the right side. He cast the net on the right side. And Peter says, we've toiled all night. We haven't caught anything. So why should we just go, all right, we'll do it. So in John 21, 11, it says, Simon Peter, and this is after they caught this great large number of fish, he went up and drew the net to the land full of large fish. Now that's very important. Full of large fish, 153. Isn't that interesting that the Spirit of God would even number the number of, of fish that are in the net? Well, actually, that number, he already knew what they were, right? So there were 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Well, the word large means mature. Means that they're ready for the harvest. They were all harvestable. Jesus said the fields are white already for harvest. We, we, we harvest the fish. It's the net that we throw out into the sea of the world and we draw it back and we have fish. Fish is fishing for men. That's what we're supposed to do is catch fish. You know, I have gone fishing a lot of times, and I'm going to tell you, I've sure got discouraged a lot of times too, because I couldn't catch any fish. And I'm just wondering if I'm just a terrible fisherman or not. But I know one fish that I catch, and it's by the grace of God, I bring some fish home. And that's converts for Jesus Christ. The process here is harvesting fish. How do we harvest fish? Now I'm talking spiritually because, see, I know how to harvest fish physically, but how do you do it spiritually? Well, Jesus again gives us the answer to that question. In Matthew 28, 19 to 20, he says, go. Guess what? That's a command. That's in the imperative mood. He didn't say, now guys, if you really want to, I'd really appreciate it if you'd go. No. He said, go. So it's a command. It's not something that, that we can say, I really don't want to do that. 
That's not my uh, my field of expertise. I really don't feel like that I'm very good at fishing for men. I really don't feel like that's where I'm at. He didn't ask you if that is how you feel. He just said go. And so what else is he saying? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and lying with you always unto the end of the age. You know that verse very well. All of you do. But the question that comes to my mind with the churches in general is what part of that passage of Scripture do they not understand? Is it go? Is that what they don't understand? Is it making disciples? Is that what they don't understand? Is it teaching them everything and and to observe everything? Is that what they don't understand? What part of this passage of Scripture is not understood? Well, the part that is not understood is making disciples. I'm here to tell you that. I have pastored for 30 years, and you know the hardest thing I had to get people to disciple others was is like pulling teeth. Why? Why was this so hard? Because it meant investing your life into somebody else. That's making disciples. It's teaching them. And see, it says teaching and observe. That means not only do you teach, but they observe you and how you're walking out what you've taught. It's disciple making. This is what I was referring to when I preached last Sunday. I said, we need fathers and mothers. Fathers and mothers are disciple makers. Disciple makers. This is so important. You see... There's a principle that God has. And the principle that God has is that he wants to multiply the church. And the only way you can multiply a church is through discipleship. So, well, I don't understand how that works. Boy, let me just sit down and show you a checkerboard plan of discipleship. And I believe that you would say, oh, I understand that now. But what he's talking about is multiplying. You say, do you have any proof of that? Yes, I do. In Acts, it's God's design to grow the church by multiplication. In Acts 6.1, now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying. How did they multiply? They were being discipled. Notice 6.7. These are all in Acts. Then the word of God spread and number and number of the disciples multiplied. Not added. Multiplied. 1224 of Acts. But the word of God grew and multiplied. God said, be fruitful to the fish and multiply. That's spiritual procreation. That's what God wants us to do. 
And I'm here to tell you, I believe in that. I started as a young man in discipleship while I was in the military. It was called the Navigators. And they helped me to understand what discipleship was all about. And for 40 years, I have been developing men by God's grace, and I have generations upon generations upon generations of men. And that man right there is one of them. He is my son in the Lord. That's right. Isn't that so? That's right. Now he's smiling like a guinea hen year to year. But it's called investing in someone's life. Listen, I can't tell you anything that is most rewarding to invest your life in somebody else's. See that person grow. See that person mature. And to think, man, God allowed me to have an input in that person's life. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. So therefore, God desires for us to make disciples. Boy, I wish I could get that across. I'd stand on my head if I could, if I can just get that point across. Now, back to fourth day, and I'm going to close here. And I've got five minutes to do it in. Jesus is the light of our lives. He's everything that I have already spoke about. He's the reason why this new creation is all about. It's so that we can be like him. Genesis 1:14 to 19 Then God said, "Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth." And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. To make the stars also, and God set, and God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning, the fourth day, the greater light is to rule the day. Now you listen to this verse. It is such a wonderful comparison. Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in a day? <laughs> Are there not 12 hours in a day? Anyone who walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. That's John eleven nine. And the Revelation 22.5, and there will be no longer any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illuminate 
and they will reign forever and ever. Man, I don't know how that works, but man, I believe it. We are lights. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light, and the Lord walketh lights. God, ultimate goal is to make us look like Jesus. That's what we need to be. So in Philippians 1, 6, it says, Be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He is working in you. He is going to complete you whether you like it or not. He's going to do it. When was the last time that God came to you and said, I'm going to put a trial in your life? Is that okay with you? I don't remember him ever saying that to me. So the good work that God is doing within us is that he's seeking that we abide in holiness, fruitfulness, obedience, and be faithful to his command. John sums this up in one verse. 1 John 2, 6. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he Let's pray. I tell you what, what I want to do before I pray, I want to ask Alan if he would close in a prayer. Would you do that for me, Alan? judge the living and the dead. And so we, sell, we say together, tell the Son of Righteousness, He comes. God, may we fi find our coats ready for that day. We exalt you. I pray that you would bless each person in this room, not, not even with material blessings, Lord, but with the presence of your Holy Son, we don't need anything else. We need you. Thank you. Uh, Father, bless the word that has been preached. Uh, may it fill our hearts. And uh, may we uh, thank you for all that you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.